0: of the reasons I spend so much time talking about fair trade goods and ethical fashion is not just because I think they're nice products or pretty things or they're unique. Sure. I mean those things are all well and good, but the fact of the matter is I care about the people and the stories behind the products I buy. Fair trade is not about charity. It's not about a handout. It's not about having pity on someone. Fair trade is about empowerment, giving someone opportunity and a sustainable income and way of living. It's about treating people like humans it's understanding that fathers and mothers around the world want the same thing for their kids that we do they want to provide for their families they want to support themselves men and women in developing nations they do not want your charity they want you to buy their stuff Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of StillBeingMolly.com, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview a business owner who is trying to make a positive impact, not only through their personal life, but also with their professional career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact right where you are. My guest this week is David Atlas, the founder of Marquette Fairtrade, a fair trade brand working with artisan partners in Asia. I have shared this brand on my blog and social media before and I have absolutely fallen in love with their beautiful jewelry and accessories. But most importantly, I have fallen in love with their mission. You are going to love this conversation and hearing David's crazy story about how Marquette got started. Now on to the episode with David. Hey David, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Molly. I'm so glad to be here with you.
0: I am so glad to have you on the show. And even amongst technical difficulties, we are ready and rearing to go and I am just really looking forward to getting to know you a little bit more. I have been following Marquette for um, a little bit now, or a few months now, and I just love what you guys are doing. But I am really, honestly, I'm most intrigued about your story because I know that you're an engineer, and it is not very often that I feel like you find an engineer in the ethical and fair trade fashion space. (laughs) So I'm just really curious to hear kind everything about you. So I'm gonna have you just dive right in. We're gonna kick it off with what I have all my guests do, and that's give us the David 101. So tell us your story and how you know how your life has led you to where you are today.
1: Um, Alright, that sounds good. The David 101. I'd be happy to share that with you Molly. Um, so Uh, I will give you the abridged version, since I don't think we need to hear everything, but I'll go kind of towards Marquette, and I'm glad you touched on me studying engineering. I did go to school, um, undergrad at Rutgers University, where I studied civil engineering. Um, I always had a passion for building when I was younger, Um, but after I graduated from that program and I started working in the engineering industry, I kind of decided that I wasn't really ready for that kind of career path yet at that young age, and I wanted to do some other things. in my life before really settling into a career. So, um, I, I started teaching, um, and I also took a gap year. Um, and in that gap year, uh, it was really important for me to visit a lot of natural sites around the world, because um, I am really into uh, into nature and wildlife. So it was very important for me to go to Australia and New Zealand. And on the tail end mm, of that Those trip, are on my bucket uh, list. <laughs> yeah, they're really, really beautiful. And they're really great and easy places to travel. And there's so many natural wonders there. And the people are amazing. So I, I yeah. definitely highly recommend it.
0: That's awesome.
1: Um, So on the tail end of that trip, I wound up uh, with some friends in Asia, and uh, really just by chance, and we fell in love with it. Uh, We we went to Thailand uh, kind of on a whim for a few weeks, and we wound up really, really enjoying it and meeting lots of really friendly people and eating lots of great food. And so we wound up extending our trip to four months, and we went around Thailand, Laos, Vietnam, and Cambodia, um, and it was really an inspirational trip. We, We met a lot of different locals um, and were really inspired by the culture and the friendliness um, and the food and the uh, the heritage and the craft there, too. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of where I first started getting the inspiration for Marquette. And after that, I came back to the States. Um, I continued teaching for a couple years. Uh, I was teaching um, one-on-one math classes to high school students uh, to prep them for the SAT and ACT exams, entrance exams for college. And uh, slowly but surely, I started... Working on Marquette with a friend, we kind of had this idea where we wanted to be able to continue travel um, and seeing the world and meeting people from different cultures. So we started with a few product lines. We actually, when we first started, we were working in Thailand, Vietnam, Laos, Uganda, and Guatemala. Mm -hmm. Um, And we just we we found that that was a little bit too much. We wanted to really focus on where we could help the most and uh, where we could do the most. So. We kind of wound it down. I restarted the company by myself instead of with a friend, and we with a focus on Thailand and Vietnam.
0: Wow! And so, what year do you really did you really get everything kicked off and really get started with
1: Marquette? Well, so for Marquette, it was uh, 2011.
0: Okay. And what year? Like, when? What was sort of the timeline like from when you first traveled? you know, started your travels and then you you extended your trip for four months and you're kind of going all over Southeast Asia um, and, you know, you're coming back to the States and you have this idea for Marquette. What was that timeline like from kind of the beginning of the infancy stages of this company to when you really fully got, got
1: started? Sure. Well, that's a very good question. It was actually, um, it was about a three or four year timeline. So I first went to Asia um, in 2005. And um, actually, I got to tell you one of my most inspirational stories and one of the most inspirational times we spent there on the first trip was uh, I was with a very good friend from high school, my friend Paul, and we um, were traveling through Laos. And at that time, Laos had only really been open to tourists for about 10 years. So it was really just an amazing experience. We were traveling up and down these huge rivers uh, on these old boats and... I just felt like everything was completely culturally intact from, from very historical times. And it was, it was just such a different culture. And we were able to kind of uh, explore the country on their own terms. And we were looking for a, a river trip that we read about in The Lonely Planet. But it was very hard to find any of these trips. So we just kept going up the river deeper and deeper and deeper uh, looking for this fishing and hiking trip. And uh, we never really found it, but eventually we just got off the the boat in this village where a couple of young kids just ran up to us, two young boys. I think they were about 11 years old and they just ran up to us and they convinced us that we had to come into their tiny little village and stay with them. And they wanted to hang out with us and play soccer with (laughs) us and and go on boats with us and all this stuff. So we were totally convinced. And, uh, And we wound up getting off there. I'm still not exactly sure where it was, somewhere in northern Laos. And we wound up staying for eight days in this tiny little village. It must have been about 500 people total. And it was really set in this beautiful, beautiful riverside mountainscape. And uh, just right in the middle of the jungle, the people there were so incredibly friendly. We were staying uh, at one guest house uh, where the host would... Stay up late every night with us playing cards, and then she would introduce us to all the other people uh, in the town. And we wound up being invited to to eat dinner with a lot of different families. And we invited up uh, we were invited to um, a party for one of the children in the town who had been sick, and she had to go to the hospital about six hours away. That was the nearest hospital, and she came wow. back healthy. And so there was a party for the whole village to kind of celebrate her coming back and to raise money to pay her medical bills. And so we were invited to that. We just had such a warm feeling from this really, really tiny community in Laos. Um, We went to play soccer with all the teenagers every day, every afternoon. And that was really just one of the most inspirational parts of the trip um, where I really just fell in love with a different culture.
0: That's amazing. I, what were you thinking when you, like, what was going through your mind when you're getting off from this river and then these kids are just like, come to our village. Like, were you, um, I mean, were you just kind of like, oh, we're up for adventure, let's just do this thing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I was a lot younger then, uh, in 2005, about 12 years ago, and we didn't really have... uh Any built-in inhibitions yet you know we'd already been traveling i'd already been traveling through australia new zealand um and so it's something that we really didn't think twice of at the time although now even having had that experience i would still think twice about doing it again just because of who i am now even though it it meant so much to me and i I really loved it i just feel like uh as an older more mature person now um i always think about risks and, you know, even just risks of, oh, am I in a place where it's possible where I can get malaria or another um, disease that, that I might not be familiar with or yeah. that I might not be prepared with uh, pills to, um, you know, to to counteract. So right. um, even just little things like, like that that come into play and now, I guess I was just a little bit young. My friend was young. We were a little headstrong, so we were able to just go for it and uh, and we really really had a great time so we didn't even think twice about getting off the boat the kids told us um that you know that they had a great place for us to stay it was I think it was like one or two dollars a night to stay in this guest house and uh the host family liked us so much that they just stopped charging us after oh a my, few days oh my goodness It <laughs> was also really just amazing um so how did you uh, comu-
0: I mean were they did they speak English did you have a translator like how did you guys how were you guys able to communicate with them
1: Um, So that that's actually that's a really really great question. So in this uh, village where we stayed no one uh, Except for the teacher no one under 22 spoke any English So all the elders in the village all the adults really didn't speak any English Um, so uh, The family that was hosting us it was really their daughter spoke pretty good English and so she kind of was able to talk to us and help us out and get us the things we needed Um, and then it was <laughs> a lot of it was those two 11 year old kids. A lot of the kids um, in the village had somehow learned English. Some of them had went to schools um, in nearby cities. Uh, others had kind of learned it from their friends who came back. They had yeah. had other um, tourists pass through the village. And I guess it was mostly the kids who were taking care of the tourists because their parents were uh, busy working, taking care of their families, hunting, gathering, and stuff like that. So actually, the, the two. Eleven-year-old boys were basically our hosts <laughs> between wow. them and uh, and and the younger. Uh, I guess she wasn't too young, maybe about nineteen or twenty, the daughter of the host family where we stayed.
0: Wow. Now I will admit, I, so I've never been to Asia. I've never been to Southeast Asia, obviously, because I've never been to Asia. Um, but I, you know, I don't honestly. I'm going to admit I don't know that much about Lao. What is that country like? What is, you know, what are some of the, you know, the beautiful things about that country and what are some of the challenges that that country faces?
1: Um, so, uh, unfortunately, Laos does face a lot of challenges, but um, I'd like to maybe start with some of the more beautiful things. Yeah. So, um, Laos is is an amazingly uh, rich, rich culture in terms of its uh it's biodiversity and it's uh, wildlife and it's jungle. Um, and it's, it's a landlocked country in between, in between China, Vietnam, Cambodia, and Thailand. Um, but it has really, really rich, beautiful, uh, rainforest. And it has all these limestone, uh, formations and limestone mountains that you see throughout Southern Thailand and also in, in Northern Vietnam. Mm. Um, so really just breathtakingly beautiful in a lot of places. Um, it is on the same weather pattern as the rest of Southeast Asia. So you basically have two seasons. You have hot and dry and hot and wet and and the monsoon season. And um, the monsoon season, it is, even though it makes things very, very difficult in a lot of ways, it's also a beautiful part of nature um, to see the rains come and to see how strong they are and to see the rainforest grow rich from rain and to see the rivers um, just rushing and gushing and, and water, which is, you know, uh, essential to life, just the water everywhere. Um, yeah. and it is a really, a really beautiful feeling. Um, Laos overall does not have a lot of development. The very first time I went to Lao, which was back then in 2005, you could probably measure all the delayed the pavement in the country yeah. in, in, in a few days, you know, maybe the two bigger cities, um, would have a little bit of payment, Luang Prabang being one of them, which is a, a cultural center in the north and Vang Vieng uh, being the capital really just had, I don't know, maybe a few dozen paved roads, even even in the capital. Yeah. Um, so a very traditional lifestyle, especially the first time I went, Um, when you compare it to like a metropolis like Bangkok, I mean, Bangkok is a very cosmopolitan city. So is uh, Saigon millions and millions and millions of people in both cities. Um, you know, a lot of Western construction, Western style housing, Western style, everything really just Mm -hmm. mega metropolises and Laos is the exact opposite of it. Um, very rural, very little technology, um, and very, very, very culturally intact through the, through the ages and through the generations. Um, Mm -hmm. which I really, really, really liked about it. Um, and, uh, Unfortunately, for Laos, had some uh, definitely some obstacles to joining the global economy because it is landlocked. I think that's the thing that's holding it back more than anything else. The mm-hmm. fact that it's landlocked um, and so much trade really has to do with uh, with ocean freight and ocean shipping yeah. um, has really uh, been a disadvantage to Laos in bringing in some. And bringing in trading partners. So I think that is a little bit unfortunate. Um, but at the same time, it has allowed the culture to remain very intact. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah.
0: So for those that do not know about Marquette, um, give us the, sort of, you know, a little bit of a picture of what Marquette does um, and, you know, how you guys or how you structured um, Marquette and the company and, and the artisans that you work with.
1: Okay, absolutely. So um, Marquette is uh, is a an manufacturer and importer, and we focus on working with all artisan partners um, on accessories and home decor. So we have a couple lines, jewelry, scarves and shawls, and then we have a couple really cute uh, little Christmas ornament lines <laughs> in our home decor category. And so the way we've structured it is, is we wanted to kind of work directly with small businesses in Asia. Um, we are a small business and we want to make sure that we can kind of work outside uh, some of the normal trade practices, uh, not really work in, in large factories, not work in places where people uh, are separated from their families, but kind of bring this kind of craft back to people's villages and where people could have more a... A sense of entrepreneurial pride in what they were doing and in their product, being in control of more of their own schedules. Um, so the way we've sourced products um, is, we, is through travel and through meeting people. And now we have a full network set up in Thailand uh, where we have full-time people on the ground there to help us with our quality control and all our outreach and logistics over there. Uh, but we travel and we Meet the artisans directly. Make sure everything is above board in terms of their trade practices, the facilities where they're working, and then we try to 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 give them feedback uh, on how we can help help adapt their skills, the skills they already have to, and the products they're already making to the Western market.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so we're not necessarily going in and training artisan groups to do a specific task, but we're we're looking for. Um, existing vendors who already are skilled in either jewelry or weaving um, or sewing or whatever it may be, and and looking to develop product lines uh, with them.
0: That's awesome. And it's such a unique approach because, and I don't think that it's necessarily one of those things where the 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 different approaches, like there's one right approach to this and one wrong approach, but they're just, they're different. Um, I like your approach of going in and finding already existing, you know, artisan partners and and finding a way that you can use their skills, um, you know, whereas the other approach would be going in and actually physically training them or giving them a skill set, um, which I think both have their advantages, obviously. Um, right. How did you, when you were first over there, how did this idea really come about? You know, as you were meeting people, was this just an opportunity that sort of presented itself? Or did you always sort of have an entrepreneurial spirit?
1: Um, I think I always had a little bit of the entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, When I was much younger, I had the snow shoveling business uh, for my block and all my neighbors when I was just, you know, 10, 11, and 12. And then um, I worked all through high school. Um, I just always kind of liked working and making a little bit of my own money and kind of taking care of myself a little bit more. Um, It it wasn't necessarily that my family was struggling or anything, um, but I just kind of liked the responsibility of working and earning things for myself. Um, And then in terms of Marquette, I wouldn't necessarily say I got the inspiration for the business when I was out there. I was really inspired by the people I was meeting, by a lot of the products that I saw. Um, A lot of the handmade stuff was really just so beautiful, and I did wind up buying lots and lots of stuff for myself and for gifts for when I got home, um, but it wasn't until a few years later that I kind of developed the the plan and really started thinking about going back and seeing if I could import with, with a friend of mine, and we did start a company called Artisan Emporia, that was mm-hmm. about 2008, and that's when we were working uh, in Uganda and Guatemala. Um, and Southeast Asia as well, and then we kind of restarted in two thousand eleven with a with a more focused strategy uh, on Marquette.
0: so when you you know, I guess what would you say is the ultimate mission of Marquette? Would you say it is there's sort of a twofold mission of one, you know, providing economic opportunity? to a, of a Western market to these artisans, or do you think it's more educating the Western market on the importance of supporting global artisans? I don't know. I mean, and maybe it's not even one of those two things, but what would you say is the ultimate mission of what you guys are doing?
1: Well, I think, um, I think that's a really, really good question, Molly. So I appreciate that. Um, I think it is more the former. So really what we're trying to do is create a a platform, for artisans and smaller businesses in in developing countries to be able to reach the global platform and the global marketplace and kind of just hook directly into the supply chain. So that that's what really motivates us each day. Um, and I think for us at Marquette, more so than necessarily educating people in the Western market, but really trying to bridge the divide for the artisans um, in Asia. And we do try and educate people in the Western market too about Fair trade and uh, cultural heritage, um, but the way that we've kind of started Marquette and the way that we run Marquette, it's it's not a nonprofit by any means, and it's not a charity. So we really, what we really want is for the products to be able to stand for themselves. Um, we're not you know, we think the uh, fair trade is extremely, extremely important. um, And all the principles of fair trade, uh, no child labor, safe uh, environmental practices, uh, paying fair uh, wages, according to everyone's local standards are extremely, extremely important. But for us, the most important thing is for the products to stand for themselves and to be able to give the artisans the pride in knowing that we're not We're not offering them any kind of charity. They're earning every dollar that they earn, and their products can stand for themselves and compete in the Western market, and people are buying them because they love the product, and they love that it's backed by the ethical uh, sourcing and manufacturing.
0: I love that, and I wish I could... I want to take that little bit and i want to like splice it into its own individual clip and pay it play it for every single person i meet, <laughs> like okay, because i awesome. feel like well i feel like this is something that i sometimes feel like I, maybe i'm beating a dead horse or maybe I'm, I'm and that is a terrible phrase by the way where did that phrase even come <laughs> yeah, from that is, is a is terrible a funny thing one. like why do we say that i don't know uh, i digress <laughs> um but i mean it You know, this is something because I'm so passionate about this stuff and my friends know this and my family knows this and my listeners know this and my blog readers know this, you know, and so sometimes I feel like I'm saying it over and over again, but I feel like I have to say it over and over again because it's so important. Sometimes I'm like, is anyone listening? Um, You know, at the end of the day, yes, like you you want to provide an economic opportunity for somebody in a developing country and, and talk about why that is important and why what kind of ripple effects that has on a community and on a on a city and on a country and on a global scale. Like what kind of positive effects those things have. But at the same time, like you don't ever like I never make a purchase from a fair trade or ethical company because I feel bad or I want to help them. I do it because I believe in the mission, and I believe in the people, but I love the products, and I love that the products tell a story. You know, I love that when I go out, you know, somebody says, oh, where did you get those shoes? And I say, oh, they're the Root Collective. Oh, they're made by these, um, you know, they're made by former gang members in Guatemala, but aren't they beautiful? I mean, the fabrics, they're hand woven using, you know, traditional Guatemalan, um, you know, backstrap loom techniques and the colors are just so vibrant and vivid and they're really well made. And, you know, I can talk about how comfortable they are and, you know, but I don't feel, I'm not buying the shoes because I feel bad and I want to help these people in Guatemala. I, buy them because they're a beautiful product but then they tell a story you know and then I I have some of the gorgeous Marquette jewelry and I actually was wearing um the the new tassel necklace and one of the new um beaded cuffs just last week and I was actually at my small group and I had like four or five people come up to me and go, oh my goodness, where is that? That is beautiful. Where did you get that? And I was like, oh yes, it's this company called Marquette Fairtrade. Let me tell you about them. And I love that that's the first thing people notice is how beautiful the product is. But then the bonus is I get to say, not only is this product beautiful, but let me tell you the impact that this product is having and the lives that are being changed. And because of this product, You know, I don't ever want somebody to just buy something because they feel bad. Because yeah, I mean, people in developing nations, no matter what country it is, whether it's in Africa, or whether it's in Asia, or whether it's in South America, I mean, wherever it is. And even right here in the United States, I mean, there's a lot of um, groups that work with, um, you know, at risk communities or um, vulnerable communities here in the United States. And I just say, you know, these are, these are real people with with stories and families and they have skills and they have talents and they just want to be seen and known and valued. They don't want your charity. <laughs> they just exactly. want an opportunity. Like they don't want you to just give them a handout. They want to be able to support their families themselves. And they want, to, they want to put their head on their pillow at night and know that they did a great job and other people believed in them. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that was very well put
0: i just I just think that this is something that so many people need to hear, and I love that that is something that you also are really passionate about, and that you guys want to continue to do that through the products that you make. And yes, yeah, seriously, I will one thousand percent preach, <laughs> preach that how beautiful the products are, um, and how I mean, how unique the jewelry is as well. I mean, because it's it's not something that you see. Every day, like you're not going to go to Target and you're not going to see something as, as unique and beautiful as um, as some of the jewelry that you guys carry.
1: Absolutely. No, I definitely, definitely appreciate you saying that. Um, and I definitely appreciate you. Um, you taking the time and and, uh, and showing off some of our new jewelry, the new Angie Tassel necklace and the Cali wrap bracelet. Actually, we have um, a video that we're going to be releasing soon of the artisans making tassels. In oh, Thailand. that's so, so cool. A, it's a really, really interesting process. It's actually, so there's up to eight different colors in each tassel. Um, so eight strands of thread. And it's just a really, really cool video. It'll, it'll be up on our Instagram, um, probably a little bit closer to the holiday season. We just need to edit it down a little bit. Um, but it's so awesome to go over there and work with the artisans. And um, and just like you said, you know, everyone wants to go to sleep at the end of the day, uh, tired and proud of, of what they accomplished. Mm-hmm. And when we are over there and working face-to-face with the artisans, that's definitely... Um, the coolest thing that we do in our business when we're really over there and seeing the people that we're working with, seeing the the people that are being impacted and just having a good time with them, you know, doing product development, doing quality control, talking to them, interviewing them, seeing how they interact with each other, uh, at, at the, uh, artisan workshop specifically where we make the jewelry, there's about 35 artisans who come in each day. But there's also another 30 or 40 that work from home and they're coming in uh, on on their own time, on their own schedule to drop off jewelry or pick up uh, raw materials and stuff like that. So there's always people coming and going. There's always laughter. There's always talking. There's everyone is smiling and it's really just such a beautiful workshop. And it's and it's really, really inspirational to be there with them, you know, sometimes working over here. You can get a little lost in the day-to-day of doing paperwork and accounting and stuff like that. But uh, once you take a trip over there and are working directly with the artisans, it's such a refreshing feeling and it it reinvigorates you to keep pushing forward uh, as hard as you can.
0: I know you are loving this conversation with David, but let me take a quick break from talking with him and let me tell you about the amazing brand that is helping to make today's show possible. I want to thank this week's sponsor of the show, which is CauseBox. You guys know how much I love CauseBox because I have been a subscriber of CauseBox since the beginning. I literally started subscribing to them over two years ago and I fell in love with it and I have been a proud, proud member ever since. If you do not know, CauseBox is a quarterly subscription box that comes out each season and each season's box has a whole design and a product theme, but every single product in the box is ethically made, fair trade or gives back in some way and they're all gorgeous. This is one of my all-time favorite subscription boxes, and truly I believe it is one of the best values. It's about $50 per box, but you receive more than $150 worth of beautiful and unique goods that are making a difference around the world. The winter box just launched and it is phenomenal. I'll be sharing some spoilers on my social media this week, so be sure to look out for those. There are only a few winter cause box boxes left, And this would make the perfect gift for yourself or someone this winter. So the team at Causebox has been so generous as to provide my listeners with an exclusive coupon code for $15 off your first box with the code Molly. Simply go to stillbeingmolly.com slash Causebox to sign up. That's stillbeingmolly.com slash C-A-U-S-E-B-O-X and use the coupon code Molly for $15 off. And if you have not heard my interview with Matt Richardson who is the co-founder of Causebox, you need to go back right now and listen to episode 13 of this podcast to hear his awesome stories. Seriously, Matt is one of the best storytellers I've ever heard and hear all about how Causebox got started. Now, back to my conversation with David. What's some of the things that you've learned from, you know, really getting started in 2011? To now, you know, has the business shifted? Um, has your motivation or your purpose shifted in any way? What What has been the biggest, I guess, change that you've seen since you've started?
1: Okay, <laughs> um, that, that is uh, that is a loaded question because there are so many changes um, almost every year now with uh, the rate of technology. Um, so, first of all, I, I think it's. Um, it's certainly no secret that um, there has been really, really, really big changes in retail and uh, retail trends over the last three years, five years, 10 years, um, as, as more and more shifts online. Um, and, um, and it's getting harder in a lot of ways for smaller businesses to compete with these mega businesses like Walmart and Target and Amazon um, and stuff like that. So when we first started in 2008 really before even 2011 we actually started the year the economy crashed and we really were focusing on wholesale at that time so we were focusing on getting into small shops and boutique stores and fair trade retailers and museum gift shops and uh, And stores like that and that's really been how we've built our, our business um, at Marquette and um unfortunately now almost 10 years later the retail landscape is is just changing a lot and we still have a lot of stores that we work very 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 closely with and are extremely successful and are getting only more and more successful each and every year which i'm really really proud of them and really happy for them um and it's a great achievement um but i think overall in in america there are less small stores um and less boutiques uh that have been able to 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 weather some of Some of the competition. Um, So I think the ones who have been able to weather it are actually doing better than ever. Um, Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, I think that retail landscape has changed a lot. Um, So we are trying to figure out the solution. Um, We're definitely, we've definitely made a lot of progress since we first started um, in terms of quality control, um, how we bring products in, how we tag products so that they're easiest for our stores to work with. And we're always kind of thinking about how we need to change and how we need to keep up moving forward. Um, we have been trying to take advantage of a lot of the technology that's presented itself over that time. Um, we do have a wholesale website for our stores to log in and be able to order online anytime. And it's completely linked to our inventory. So I think that's been a really great advancement. I think that makes things very, very easy for our our retailers to, um, to make sure that they're that they always have product, um, and, they're, and they have kind of access to our full inventory. Um, so technology has definitely helped us there. And, you know, we are trying to improve our access to, to social networks now because we are seeing how important that is. In the beginning, as a wholesaler, that had never really struck us as something that was that important to do, but now that we're seeing the way that patterns are changing, we want to get out there. We want to be building the brand so people can can know us, look for us in stores, go into their local retailers, go into their local fair trade shops, um, and and be looking for Marquette.
0: I love that. I think that is such a, you guys have such a clear vision, and you have such a clear mission that it's it's so evident why you guys have have grown so much and the success that you've seen because when you find businesses or when you look at businesses that just have that clear, you know, just tunnel vision where you're just like, We are going at this, we're not gonna give up. Um, you know, you're able to weather those storms and you're able to push through the times when things get difficult. And this is a conversation I feel like I have with other entrepreneurs and other business owners and just people in general, because it can be so easy to just want to throw in the towel when things get when things get tough. And, right. you know, especially as you know, especially in business and when you add the layer of working internationally to the equation, you can you know, things can get pretty tough pretty quickly. But you, you know, when you're able to push through those those times, you're able to really see the fruit of that that labor and the fruit of that success and um so I just think that that's so cool
1: yeah no I definitely appreciate that I did not even touch on all the difficulties of of working with you know seven or eight different artisan groups not only in in another country but another country that's literally the exact opposite time so (laughs) when it's 1 p.m for us it's 1 a.m for for them and so you know there's definitely a lot of difficulties there yeah um and in terms of the industry changing you know we have really been very fortunate and very blessed and we've grown every single year since we started Marquette and we're still uh on track to grow by by 15 or 20 percent this year so we've been really really lucky and really blessed um to be able to grow through all those changes I mean it has been really really hard and I do feel like the strategy has has shifted away from what industry we thought we were getting into when we first started um as 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 wholesalers. Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: What makes you tick? Like, what is the thing that keeps you up at night? Is there a particular, <laughs> you know, uh, I guess I just mean like, is there That's a, a per-
1: spot for me because I have trouble sleeping sometimes.
0: <laughs> oh, no. I think all entrepreneurs fight, fight insomnia on a regular basis. Yes. Um, but really like, what is the thing that you just, you see as maybe a problem or a an issue or a challenge that either, you know, your artisan partners face or, you know, maybe our world in general faces that you that just really keeps you up at night that you feel like you want to be a part of the solution. You don't want to just kind of sit back and say, oh, that's that's terrible. Something somebody should do something about that.
1: Right. Well, the things that keep me up at night and the things that make me tick are are definitely two different things. Mm. Um, And, you know, the things that make me tick, I've just always had this kind of the entrepreneur bug and the travel bug. And I really love traveling. I really love seeing new places. I really love exploring new cultures and eating new foods. And um, I'm very into wildlife um, and especially scuba diving. And so it really means a lot to me to be able to continue to go and explore other countries and be kind of an ambassador for America, especially in our current very divided political times, um, that I can go and I can be a small ambassador of American culture and American life. And as an American, you know, this is what I want to be able to contribute. And I want to be able to help empower artisans and um, people help people take control of their lifestyles and be a little more independent in their work and their goals um and so that is really really important to me and that's um that is one of the things that that keeps me interested in marquette and really seeing the fruits of the labor and seeing the artisans that we work with and seeing them grow over the years um is really 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 important to me uh what keeps me up at night is um, is quality control issues, issues finding raw materials, um, issues that are sometimes out of our control, especially with the raw materials. You know, mm-hmm. unfortunately, we can't make everything in house all the time. So whether it's it's buying the right quality cotton or getting um, jewelry uh, fixings um, that meet all of our quality control levels um, and that will come consistently every single time are are a little more difficult meeting. Ah, uh, clients' deadlines, making sure we have the correct production capacity to meet our our um, growing needs, uh, and stuff like that. So there's definitely a lot, a lot of challenges. We do work with a lot of different artisan groups, um, so there are, there is a lot of management going on. Um, we are going, you know, working with people in a different culture who speak a different language. Yeah. So there are some sometimes some cultural barriers, or sometimes we think something is clear and it's not as Clear as we thought, and I'm sure the same thing happens uh, from the other side, where they where they think they're making a point pretty clear to us, and we're not necessarily on the same page with them. Um, So there's definitely a lot of just a lot of issues to work with. You know, we do have about 250 different SKUs. We have well over 120 or 150 different kinds of different pieces of jewelry. Um, We have I would say 50 or 60 different style colorways of scarves, and Mm. maybe another. 20 or 30 for the ornaments. So um, so we really have a lot of products and there's really a lot that goes into maintaining the quality control and the production timelines and the capacity and the inventory management. Um, and that's just all dealing with our partners abroad. And then we have the whole other side of the business here, um, streamlining, shipping, getting orders out on time, um, accounting, bookkeeping, uh, customer acquisition, wholesale, uh, keeping up with social media. So yeah. there's really... There's really, really, um, a lot that goes into a business like this. Um, especially because we're dealing with so many artisans and so many products. It's very different from, let's say a clean canteen or a pickle company that has six different types of pickles. And their whole mission is to like, be able to produce as many pickles as possible, (laughs) um, (laughs) but, but you know, but they only, they're only dealing with quality control, um, for six items. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a totally different kind of business model, but but in some ways, it, it's, it's a lot simpler. They have six items, six items to do quality control for. They have six different cases they can sell. And then it's all about finding distribution and selling them and keeping up with manufacturing, whereas there's so many different pieces uh, to the puzzle in
0: Marquette. I know that this is a common issue because I think pretty much every ethical business owner I speak with is like let me tell you about these things <laughs> let, like, let <laughs> yeah. me tell you about what it's like to get raw materials in a third world country
1: <laughs> oh, yeah yeah, yeah. Let- we, we take that stuff for granted here too you know we can <laughs> yeah. we have access to any material at any time we want we'll be yep. you know we can get within a couple of days or a week but Um, And so we really take that for granted When over there it's completely different
0: Yes, yes, oh my goodness Um, well, David, now comes the point of the show where I just get to know you a little bit better on a, you know, on a fun level. So we ask some fun questions. Um, so, and this is also what we're sort of dubbing the lightning round. I don't know. We don't have a name for it yet. I'll, I'll come up with a name for this segment eventually, but for now it's just, we're going to call it the lightning round. And this is also the point in which my husband inserts a really fun sound effect here.
1: You know what? I will have some meatloaf. Let's have some meatloaf. You want some? Yes. I need you go. Hey, Mom! The meatloaf! We want it now! The meatloaf! <laughs> All right, awesome. David. I'm ready to have some fun. Let- let's head right into the lighting round. Let's do it. Let's do it.
0: All right. So the first fun question is, if you owned a boat, what would you name it?
1: Um. <laughs> 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 okay, I, I have... I have a great well I would name it the Lazy Bones.
0: The Lazy Bones. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> Is there I, have I can't to,
1: say it's original, okay, but okay. I think I would have to name it the Lazy Bones.
0: I feel like there has to be a story behind this.
1: Um <laughs> I love I love boats. Um that was that was just such an on point question. I love being on the water. Absolutely love love being on the water. I love all water sports. I love scuba diving. I love snorkeling. Um I love fishing because I love kind of being able to harvest some of my own food from the environment. Um I love being out in the sun, wakeboarding, like anything. I just love, love, love being on the water. I yeah. love being on boats. That's Anytime awesome. I have to, to do that. Um, it's a great opportunity. I, I always try and do that. And even here in New York, a lot of people don't think about New York as um, as having any kind of water sports or anything like that. But actually, you know, we are very close to the beach. We're close to mm-hmm. Long Island. Um, and we love to go, to, uh, to go swimming here, to take out kayaks in the bays here, to go on boats out of Long Island. Um There's there's whales and there's all kinds of marine life right here in in New York. So um, so I I love boats and I would love to have my boat named the Lazy (laughs) Bone.
0: I love it. I think that's awesome. Um, Which fictional character would be the coolest to meet in real life?
1: Which fictional character would be the coolest to meet in real life? <laughs> hmm. Let me think about this one for a little bit. So as a fictional character, does it have to be like a cartoon or it could be just a, a Any character fictional from... character.
0: It could be from a book, a movie, a TV show. Any fictional character.
1: I would like to meet uh, Dev from Master of None.
0: <laughs> oh, I've never seen that. But I have had so many people say that that is like the that is the show that I would love
1: yeah it's just a really really great show um and I think he does um he's just doing a great job as he's on sorry i mean I think he's a great comedian I've liked a lot of his previous work, a lot of his stand up um he was amazing in parks and Rec, which was overall really an amazing show yeah um but I really like what he what him and Alan have been able to do in this show where they're just kind of uh you know they're they it it speaks directly to me as a thirty five year old New yorker um <laughs> about about life for younger people in New York, but not too young, kind of just uh, just outside the millennial generation. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, also life for first generation people um, here, here in America, whether um, they be from India or Asia or, or, or whatever, wherever else they may be here from, um, just kind of that experience of being first generation in America as a young adult. Because, you know, you've heard about it from older people and from younger people, but I think he's really bringing the perspective of the middle-aged people like myself <laughs> um, <laughs> right to the forefront, and he really hits it on the head. Um, and he touches on a lot of good topics. He's really, really funny. So
0: that well, now you've you've confirmed that I need to watch this show. So I Absolutely. will, I'll, I'll tune in and I'll get back to you. <laughs> Sounds
1: good. I look forward um, to it.
0: What's the most interesting thing you have read or seen recently?
1: Um, the most interesting thing uh, I've read recently, I'm actually reading a book called Spy Secrets That Can Save Your Life.
0: <laughs> that sounds awesome. I'm writing that um, down.
1: Yeah, um, so it's, it's pretty cool. It's, it's by Jason Hansen, and he's a former, um, former CIA uh, agent. Um, and so it's just like a lot of tips and techniques about being aware in all kinds of different situations and how to de- de-escalate situations, how to avoid confrontations, um, and how to make sure you're aware of your surroundings. Um. To, to see how you could avoid um, bad situations before they happen and then also tips and tricks of how to get out of bad situations once they have gone that way.
0: That sounds awesome. Yeah, I, so it's a pretty cool read. I am definitely adding that to my reading list. All right, so here we are getting to the rapid-fire questions. So just say whatever. which of the two things you would pick. It's like either-or situation. Hot pretzels or nachos? Nachos. Iced or hot coffee? Hot. Soda or tea? Tea. Netflix or Hulu?
1: Netflix by a (laughs) long shot.
0: Watch live or recorded so you don't have to watch commercials?
1: Always recorded.
0: Rock or country? Rock. Sugar or chocolate chip cookies?
1: Chocolate chip cookies.
0: (laughs) And then the last one, and this one might be tough for you, Thai or Vietnamese food? Thai. Ooh, I like, what's your favorite Thai dish?
1: I really love this, um, it's called uh, pad kai dao, which is mm. a, it's a fried egg salad. It's one of my favorite dishes. I love gang hung Lay, which is a, a spicy and sweet northern curry. Mm. Um, I really, 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 really like Thai food. I really like Vietnamese food too, but I, I personally love eating a spicy food. Um, and so I just have a great love and passion for Thai food. We have some um, good actually, Thai food Thai around food here. Sometimes, too.
0: Yeah, we've got some good Thai food around here. I grew up, so I grew up right outside of Washington, D.C., and one of my childhood friends, she was my neighbor, um, was a girl. She was a couple years younger than me, but she was Vietnamese, and she was um, first-generation Vietnamese. I mean, her parents, you know, had just come here recently, Um, and you got, this is the early 90s, and her parents had actually opened up a Vietnamese fall restaurant right, like, down a block from where we lived. So I lived, my house was on the corner and she (laughs) lived in kind of some little townhouses right next to it. And her parents opened a little Vietnamese restaurant. Well, it was so cool because, I mean, since they own the restaurant, we would just, you know, if I was playing at her house or if I was having a sleepover there or something, we would, like, her mom would just be like, you know, (laughs) invite us over to the restaurant and just make, whatever we wanted Vietnamese food wise, you know, at 11 o'clock at night or whenever, like I could just literally walk down the street, walk at our parents' restaurant and they would just fix me, whatever. But it was, I mean, it was authentic, That's awesome. That's a- <laughs> authentic Vietnamese food and it was so delicious. But I have not been able to find a Vietnamese restaurant around here that even compares like so i just feel like i was so spoiled that i had this like authentic
1: vietnamese
0: food that i could eat whenever i wanted growing up and now here i am as an adult i'm like i just want to find good vietnamese food
1: so yeah absolutely there's there's nothing that can compare to (laughs) actual home cooking from Uh, from a person of of another culture whether you know you can go to a thai restaurant or a vietnamese restaurant or any kind of restaurant a Guatemalan restaurant a mexican Mm -hmm. restaurant and it's not the same as being prepared, uh, you know, a meal by by someone from that culture.
0: Exactly. I also had so. I mean, growing up, obviously, right outside of D.C., it was. A, I went. I grew up in a very multi multicultural area, and my other um, neighbor friend, um, her or his parents were from El Salvador, and so we would go over there, and then like his mom would make us pupusas, and like, oh my gosh, they were so good. <laughs> and here I am as an adult, but actually. A friend of mine who is El Salvadorian um, said that there is a food truck like here in the Raleigh-Durham area that is a pupusa food truck and said it's like it's legit like it is a you know if you want El Salvadorian like real pupusas that this is where you go and so I have yet to try it but I need to do that so and if you're listening and you live in the Raleigh-Durham area and you know of like Legit Vietnamese food. You need to send me a message because I'm I'm on the hunt. I'm on the hunt.
1: <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you had an amazing uh, culinary experience as as a child, and young did. adult. <laughs> D. I D. did, really I cool. did.
0: So I'm so I'm I'm so like I feel like again I feel I feel kind of spoiled because like, I grew up with all my friends were from so many different backgrounds that I got to eat their parents' <laughs> authentic cooking for years. Yeah. I love it. Well, David, this was such a great conversation and I had so much fun uh, just getting to know you and the Marquette story a little bit more and getting to know, you know, your love for spy secrets and, um, and master of none and all that kind of stuff. So thank you so much for your time today. And, uh, just again, just can, I, you know, I applaud what you're doing. And I just really encourage you um, as you're, you know, building this business and, and really impacting so many lives um, in Southeast Asia and here in the United States as well.
1: Well, I really appreciate the time you took today as well, Molly. Um, it was a blast. And I really um, appreciate uh, being on your your show. So thank you very, very much. Um, it was great getting to meet you too. And I look forward to uh, to talking to you again soon.
0: Okay, raise your hand if you want to go stay in a guest house in Laos for eight days with 500 villagers. Right? What an amazing story. But most of all, man, I love David's passion for helping these men and women in Asia. I will be sure to have all of Marquette's information and how you can support them and shop their products, and I will have all of that information in the show notes. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to this week's episode. If you are new to the show, welcome. If you are a regular listener, thank you. Your support week in and week out means so much to me. Be sure to head on over to iTunes or your favorite podcasting app and make sure you are First and foremost, subscribed to the show. Clicking that subscribe button makes sure that you never miss an episode of the podcast. And while you're there, would you mind leaving a review of the show? Leaving a review really helps me know what you're liking and how the show is personally impacting you. And if you share the show on social media, which I love, it seriously warms my heart every single time. Be sure to use the hashtag businesswithpurposepodcast or tag me at StillBeingMolly on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Another huge thank you to this week's podcast sponsor, CauseBox. Visit stillbeingmolly.com slash causebox and use the coupon code Molly for $15 off. And as always, this show is edited by my amazing, amazing husband, who I love so much, and executive producer, John Stillman. And the music is by Mark Killian of Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening. Now go do something good with purpose on purpose.